As we've journeyed through the book of Acts, we've been spending probably the majority of this year in the book of Acts. We, I think we started around March. And so far, we've seen the beginning of the early church. And as Jesus told them, basically, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He'll give you unity. He'll make you bold. He'll give you understanding in the word of truth. And he will send you to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, which was the area surrounding Jerusalem there in Israel. And he'll send you to the outermost reaches of the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came to set captives free, to set us free from sin, to open the eyes of the blind, to set captive those who are oppressed, excuse me, to set free those who are oppressed and captive. And that truth is what God sent in order to, through his son, reveal his character, reveal his love for those who he created, you and I. So the nation of Israel was the people that God chose to reveal his love for the world through. And it came through the plan of salvation that started with a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham is who the Jews call the father of their faith. And he was just a a pagan man that was out worshiping the moon, looking up to the sky and the Lord, not the moon, not any other foreign God, the Lord, the only one true and living God spoke to him and revealed himself to Abraham, not because Abraham was a good guy, but because Abraham was open. He was, he was listening and, and the Lord spoke to him and he revealed himself into, to Abraham in a mighty way. And because of what God told Abraham, Abraham believed him And it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so from that point on, the people of Abraham would follow God by faith through the way that God had revealed himself to them. So today we find ourselves in the rescue plan that God's given to the world through Jesus. But it started with a man named Abraham and it was fulfilled in a man by the name of Jesus who came through the nation of Israel. So as we were studying last week, we were in Acts chapter 14, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, many of you have heard of him, he was a man who wrote a good portion of the New Testament. And Paul believed God, but he didn't start out by being a Christian, he started out by being a Jew, a very self-righteous Jew. He would describe himself that way. He was a very religious man, he followed the law to the T, but what he found out is as he followed the law and he looked at the Ten Commandments, he had fulfilled all of them, except for one when he got to the end, and that was called covetousness. He wanted, he wanted what, other people's had that was, what other people had that wasn't his, and so even in his own self-righteousness, when he measured himself according to what the law said you must do to be righteous in the sight of God, he recognized that he fell short of the glory of God. But he didn't recognize that until the Lord humbled him on the road to Damascus, knocked him off of his high horse, as it were, and revealed to him that in his self-righteousness, he had been persecuting God's people, the Christians. He was going to different towns, dragging them out of their homes, and he was taking them to the Jerusalem council to be put in jail. And so as they were obeying Christ and he was rejecting Christ, he was persecuting those who obeyed Christ. And in doing so, he didn't realize it, but he was persecuting the God that he claimed to follow. And so Paul has had this life change. He's given his life to the study of God's word, reading the Old Testament, learning how it revealed that Jesus Christ was going to be one day the Messiah that was sent to the nation of Israel. Not just for the nation of Israel, but what we're seeing is as the book of Acts unfolds, That that salvation was not just for the Jews, though it came through the Jews, it was for the whole world. We know this based on one verse that most people in the world know, at least in our country. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, He so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John 3.17 goes on to say, He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Turn from their sins, turn to following God. And so 
As we got to last week's passage in Acts chapter 14, I'm finally getting there. Basically, what had happened is Paul's on this first missionary journey. God had set apart Paul and Barnabas when they were in the church over here on the right side of the screen in Antioch. They were there worshiping and the Lord said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I'm going to call him to them to. And then he sent them on this missionary journey to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in these other nations, in these other cities. And as they went, they taught Jesus to all those that they encountered. And they started in the synagogues, and then they went to the Gentiles that were in that town. But they would always go through the synagogue first because they had the word of God, what God had revealed to them in the Old Testament. And then they would go to the Gentiles and explain to them through the revelation of God's character, Romans chapter 1 says, that we can see in creation that it, we, just like a man who looks at a house, they see that someone has taken time to build that house, that God says that even in his creation, it points to the fact that there's a creator, that it's not all by accident. And so as he's gone through and they proclaim the gospel, they got to Antioch there, not Antioch over here on the right side, but Antioch and Pisidia in Asia Minor there in what we would call modern day Turkey, up there in Antioch. And he spoke very boldly expressing that salvation can be had in Jesus. And so the Gentiles received it. They were full of joy. And then there was a group of Jews there that were like, wait a minute, I thought that only Jews could follow God. He chose us. So they got jealous, they got envious that other people would be offered salvation. And so their jealousy, their envy, caused them to be very angry with Paul and Barnabas. And so they made a plot to try and kill Paul. So as they found out that there was a plot and that someone was planning to take their lives, they traveled to Iconium and they continued to preach. It didn't stop them from preaching, but what it did was it caused them to move to a different town. So they get to Iconium and they share the same gospel message. They exhort them to, to turn from their sins and turn to God and to put their faith in Jesus. And yet again, the same response. There's a group of Gentiles and many Jews that believe they receive Jesus as their salvation. But there's also this group of very religious Jews that are like, hey, wait a minute. We were in, we're in the God Club. This is an exclusive God Club. And you guys can't get in. This is ridiculous. You guys are blaspheming against the God that we know. So we're going to stop your message. And Paul could relate to this because at one time Paul did the same thing. He was jealous. He thought, no way can other people follow my God without going to God through the way I've gone through by following the law. And so there again, they, there was a plot against his life. They left, they went to a place called Lystra and eventually Derb or Derby, however you say that. And when they get there in Lystra, they share the gospel and all of a sudden there's many who believe, Gentiles and Jews alike. But all of a sudden it's all catching up to them because they can go to the next town, but those that were in those other towns are still aggravated with them. And so they're kind of men on the run. And as they're on the run, and they're going to these different towns continuing to preach the gospel, those that are opposed to what they're preaching, they're kind of catching on that these, these guys aren't stopping. They're not, they won't shut their pie hole. So let's go shut it for them. And so they travel, many of them against Paul and Barnabas, they travel from Antioch of Pisidia, they go to Iconium, and at the time that people are receiving the gospel there in Lystra, what happens as all this is catching up with them, they get chased down from these different towns. And in Lystra, this group shows up of these Jews that are opposed to Paul and Barnabas and the message that they're preaching. And they say, hey guys. And they persuade a group of them to stone Paul and Barnabas. So they do it. They finally catch up with them and they stone Paul and Bar They stone Paul for sure that it says there in chapter 14. And as they're stoned to what they think to death, this group goes, okay, they're dead. They drag him out of the town, leave Paul for dead. And it says there in chapter 14 that as after he was drug out of the town, that he rose up again. Now, many uh, make the inference that 
Paul had in fact been stoned to death because of the testimony he gives there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he expresses the story of a man that he once knew that was stoned to death, or not that was stoned to death, he doesn't get specific, he just says, I knew a man once, 14 years ago or so, that had been, he, he was dead and he doesn't know if he was in the body or not, but he got this vision, he was taken up to the third heaven. But that's what they infer, that they think that he died. Whether or not he died, he was probably brutally beaten with rocks. I don't know if you guys have ever been hit by even a small rock, but it hurts. But they wouldn't take small rocks, they would throw large rocks. And so as he gets back up, after they had all surrounded around him, many of those people that were with Paul, they loved Paul. They were no doubt mourning his loss. And then he stands up. He walks back into Lystra. He stays the night. And the next day they depart and they go to another city. So Paul will not be stopped. He's not giving up. Many uh, believe that if he did in fact die and the Lord miraculously brought him back to life and he did get a vision of heaven, that would, in fact, cause him to be more confirmed. I need to keep sharing this gospel because until my testimony's up, God's going to keep me safe. He's going to protect me. And so they continue. They go to Derb, and long story short, they turn back around, and you can see kind of there's a red dotted line, and then they turn back around and they go back on the black dotted line, and they follow that path. It seems that once they turn back around, they go back through all the cities, and they no longer are preaching the gospel, but they find those that were converted, that became Christians, and they strengthen them by teaching them to follow Jesus. It's no longer a, a gospel message of you must be saved from your sins. It's now, now that you've been saved by Jesus from your sin and the power of sin, this is how you should now live. And so they're teaching them to continue to follow Jesus and to trust in him by faith in their everyday life. I've been to many churches where every week to the congregation what they do is they, they, they proclaim salvation and it's like every week they're, they're preaching Jesus to people that are already saved. My question is, what are we supposed to do now that we're saved? And so Paul went back and he did that. And they taught and they exhorted, they encouraged them, keep following Jesus. It's not just about getting your ticket punched to heaven, but how does your life, how should your life now look now that you've decided to follow Jesus? And so they did that. They return. And at the end of their return, they go through all the cities down to Italia. It's not Italy, that's Italia. And they head back over to Seleucia and then to Antioch where that's their home church. That's who sent them out on the mission. And when they get there, they encourage and they tell them, hey, this is all that happened while we were gone. This is what took place. And so this is our context as we start in Acts chapter 15. They've returned Acts chapter 14, verse 28 says, So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They've returned home and they're going to hang out for a while. They're going to get some rest. They're going to do what they were doing before they left until God tells them to do otherwise. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, A certain men, it says, and certain men, this is a group, came down from Judea, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, that you cannot be saved. Now, what I want to point out is that it says they came down from Judea, but what we also need to realize is on the map, you see there Antioch on the far right, and then you see the word Syria under there. Judea was to the south of Antioch. So when they're saying that they went these, this certain group of men came down to Antioch. It doesn't mean that they're heading down south like we would say. What it means is that Judea, the elevation there is higher. So it would be like leaving Colorado to come down to Kansas. Does that make sense? The elevation is lower, so they were going down the hill. They weren't looking at a map and saying, well, they were going down on the map. So when they came down from Judea to Antioch, it just means they're changing elevation. But they came down from Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, which is where the region of the Jews and Israel is. And they said, you know what? I see that there's many Gentiles in your region that are trusting in Jesus, but they're not circumcised. They need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, most of us, I believe, as far as I know, I don't have a son, but I know my brother 
when he had his little boy and he's laying there on the table and we're looking at him in the nursery and we're going, oh my gosh, he's so cute. And I can't believe he's finally here. He goes, yep, he's getting ready to go get his cirque. You know, he called it a cirque. And he said, uh, and I said, well, why? You know, and he goes, I don't know. That's just what we do now, right? And yeah, in our culture, we circumcise our children. I think it's for sanitary reasons, for cleanliness. We won't get into that. Praise the Lord. I told somebody this weekend, I said, I'm teaching on circumcision on Sunday. That ought to be funny. He goes, just put up a picture. I go, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. But more than the medical procedure, what we want to talk about this morning is, what is circumcision and why do we do it? Where did it it originate? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 17 so we can get God's intentions for it. Because circumcision is not just this arbitrary thing that the Jews were supposed to do. There was a reason for it. There's always a reason for everything God gives us to do. So in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, I'll give you a moment to get there. God had revealed himself to Abram. At this time, he's not called Abraham. He's called Abram. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And so it says there, as we begin in Genesis chapter 17, it says, when Abram was 99 years old. Now, how many of you guys know somebody that's 99 years old? Not many of us, right? There's one. 99 years old. Wow. But it says there, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. That's his first introduction. He says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now a covenant is an agreement. It's a promise between God and Abram here. Then Abram fell on his face, the act of worship. He bows down before him. And God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant, my promise is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. In other words, you shall no longer be called an exalted father, but I call you a father of many nations. That's what those two names mean. Names are never arbitrary. There's always meanings. And so that's how God, you know, kind of tells the story through the names of these people. He says there, verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant, my promise between me and you and your descendants after you in your generate in their generations for an everlasting promise to be God to you and your descendants after you. So wait a minute. We might miss this, but remember I said Abraham or Abram at this time, how old is he? He's 99 years old. And God had told him previously, I'm going to give you a child. But now he's telling him, not only am I going to make you fruitful, but I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Can you imagine being 99 years old and the Lord tells you, I'm going to give you children. 99. Now, Abram is called the father of the faith. And I believe that there are many things that are hard to believe, but I think Abraham, the first thing he was told to believe was probably harder than most of the things that God tells us to believe. Abraham, I know you're 99, but I'm going to give you children. Now, his wife was not much different in age. She was in her 90s. And so, how many people do you guys know that are in their 90s that have had children? Okay, none. All right, me neither. So, this is an extremely extraordinary, incredible, oh my gosh, promise. How do you know if God's promise is true? He fulfills it. And that's what he's trying to show Abraham here. I'm going to be faithful. Even though this seems impossible, with God, nothing is impossible. So, God said to Abraham, verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my promise, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my promise, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. 
Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So number one, it's a sign of the, the promise that God made to Abraham. That's why they were supposed to do it. So, verse 12, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So, God gave this outward sign to show the world, although they wouldn't see it because they'd have clothes on, hopefully, they would basically do this as a sign to remember God's covenant, his promise that he made to them. Now, I find it interesting, just a side note, that he told them to do it on the eighth day. Why? Because modern medicine tells us it's not until after eight days of being out of the womb that the child can produce vitamin K, which vitamin K makes it so our blood will coagulate and become a scab rather than just bleeding to death. Interestingly enough, when they circumcise the male child, nowadays they do it the day they're born, and before they do it, they gave them a shot of vitamin K. How cool is that? I just think that's amazing that God goes, you know what, wait till the eighth day, not just for some arbitrary reason because I want to make a rule, but because that's when the baby will be able to not die from being cut. And so the Lord is intricately involved in all the details. He doesn't just say things so that you know we have extra rules to follow. He always has reasons. And so he gave this as a sign to Abraham, not only as just an arbitrary thing to do, but it was an outward sign that Abraham and his descendants were God's people. He commanded them to do it. This is what's going to make you different than the rest of the world. Number two, as an act of outward obedience. I'm asking you to do this thing that probably makes no sense to you, but it makes sense to me. And later it will be a type of what God's going to do through the world. And really, it was just a picture of removing that outward skin that would reveal the sensitive heart beneath. Because later he says to the nation of Israel, he says, says, you guys are circumcised in the flesh, but your hearts have not been circumcised. What I was trying to do was I was trying to remove that, that hard shell on the outside of your heart. I wanted you to become sensitive to me. I wanted you to be softened in your heart and be ready to respond when I give you something to do and be obedient to my commands. And so what they took this outward action to be was that it would be a work that would save them, that would make them God's people. But we know that if if, if we do an outward sign of obedience, but our heart isn't changed at all, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. We can't impress God by our obedience, unless it's coming from a heart that is willing to surrender our actions to him. And so that's what he's telling, they're going to get ready to tell them here. So anyway, all the way back to where we were in Acts, I know that's kind of been a rabbit trail, but I wanted to go to the origin of it. So it says there in verse 1 that there was a certain group, and this group was called the Judaizers. These were Pharisees, the same people that Jesus had to deal with, these legalistic Jews that Jesus had to to deal with. And they say, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're saying this to a group of people that have just professed their faith in Jesus, but they're not Jewish. They're not under the old covenant. They've come in through the covenant, the promise through Jesus Christ, that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, that you will be saved by Jesus. Now, we know that if our heart, if we profess with our mouth and we believe with all our heart, that will lead to outward actions of obedience. But they're trying to tell them, you need to submit yourself to the Old Testament law to be saved. Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders that are there about this question. But notice their first reaction. They come back from this missionary journey. 
They've taught them that the only thing you got to do to be saved is trust in Jesus, which leads to outward actions of obedience towards God. And these other, this group of people that has been sent out from Jerusalem, they're teaching another gospel. They're saying, you know, Jesus is good, but you need to add something to it to be saved. And what Galatians, the book of Galatians, is writing to a group of people just like this, that what he says is Jesus plus anything equals no salvation. If you're trying to add to your faith works that make you good before God, you're trusting in yourself, you're not trusting in Jesus. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? He said, it is finished. I've done it all. I paid the price. I lived all the righteousness that could be lived. I fulfilled the law completely. Now, if you put your faith in me, you receive my forgiveness and then you receive my righteousness in place of your filthy rags. Basically, the righteousness we try to muster up on our own. And so because they had taught this gospel, this false gospel to this group, Paul and Barnabas, it's, uh, Luke writes in the diminutive, he says that there was no small dissension. In other words, there was a really big dissension. They disputed, they argued with these Judaizers because these Judaizers were trying to draw people away from faith, wholehearted faith in Jesus, and start, start to put their trust in their own duties, their own works. And so Paul and Barnabas, they argue this. So then it says that they were, it was decided that they should go to Jerusalem to find out an answer to this question. So verse 3 says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, through Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So they didn't take this trip as just a business trip. They recognized that God could use this for more than just some argument. That as they're going up to Jerusalem, they could also share the testimony of how God had opened up faith in the Gentiles and they were being saved in the droves, by the droves. Is that the way to say that? There was a large group of Gentiles being saved. And so as they told this to all the other churches on the way to Jerusalem, the other Christians were encouraged. They were built up. And so they used this as an opportunity to share the mighty works of God and encourage the other believers. Verse 4, and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect, this was a, a group of the Pharisees who believed in Christ, they rose up saying, it's necessary, this is the same message we heard before, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. It's very important that they deal with this question. Is it true? Do we need to do other things than just trust in Jesus to be saved? Because if it's true, then Paul and Barnabas need to change their message. So they need to find out, is this true or is this bogus? And this, this is important because it, it changes everyone else's salvation if that's the truth. And so now the apostles and the elders came to the, consider this matter. Verse 6. So when there had been much dispute, much argument, much discussion, Peter was there in the church in Jerusalem and he rose up and he said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, you ever hear somebody say, well, God knows my heart? I've heard lots of people say, God knows my heart. And they're like, so I'm justified, I'm good. God knows my heart. The problem with that is I know my own heart sometimes. And the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? But the Lord, he sees the heart. He sees directly down into it, sees even to our motives that half the time we don't know what our motives are. That should scare you, not make you feel righteous. That should scare you. Because if you really consider your intentions a lot of the times, what you'll find is that many times we have the wrong intentions. The fact that God does know our hearts and yet still gives us the opportunity to be saved by grace, an unmerited gift, something we can't earn, should show how gracious and how merciful that he truly is. So, 
So God, verse 8, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, meaning the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter's speaking to a Jewish group there. They're Jewish Christians, but they're still Jewish in culture. And so he's saying, just like on the day of Pentecost, when the Lord sent the Holy Spirit to indwell in those who believe in Jesus, God did this same thing for the Gentiles. And if you remember back in Acts, just a few chapters, Peter was praying and he was waiting. He was getting ready to eat some food. And the Lord revealed to him while he was praying on the rooftop. He said, he gave him a vision of this big blanket with these clean and unclean animals. And the Lord told Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he wasn't supposed to eat unclean animals. There was a group of clean and unclean animals that the Jews were allowed to eat. But when Peter really realized it, he pondered what the Lord was trying to tell him later. What he realized is that God wasn't telling him, hey, go out and eat a bunch of food. He was telling him, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. He was revealing to Peter, I'm getting ready to open the doorway, the gateway of salvation through Jesus Christ to those who that you guys in the past have considered unsavable. The Gentiles, the people that you call dogs, I'm going to save them by my grace. So I want you to go and share this message with them. I'm going to open up their hearts. I'm going to give them the same Holy Spirit I gave to you. And they're going to believe unto faith. And they're going to be with you in heaven. And they're going to live an abundant life. They're going to proclaim salvation to many other Gentiles. So Peter's referring back to that experience that was also confirmed by the word of God. It wasn't just something that he experienced. He's like, I feel like God does this. It was something that God revealed to him in, in his word. So, you, verse 8, I'm going to read verse 8 and 9 again. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. No longer having to go to the temple and make sacrifices, but just their faith in the Lord is what purified them. And so, verse 12, excuse me, verse Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God? He's speaking now to these <laughs> Judaizers. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the, the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You see, these Judaizers, they kind of had a nostalgic view of their past as a nation, of the nation of Israel. They had a rose-colored glasses view of what they, what they were when God called them. This is demonstrated by a brief overview of the Old Testament. Basically, throughout Israel's history, God gave them the law. He said, this is my standard. If you follow it, by this standard, you will live. But at the birth of the nation, when God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites through Moses, when Moses was coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, they couldn't even wait for the commandments of God. They saw the fiery mountain. They heard the thunderings and the, the noise on top of that mountain. God was speaking to Moses. When Moses came down, guess what the nation of Israel was doing? They were worshiping a golden calf. They were doing all kinds of abominations. And so they thought, hey, God saved us, and then we just followed him all the rest of our days. And what Peter's saying is, you never did that. From the inception of Israel to the, the closing of the Old Testament, what we find out is actually that the nation of Israel, in many ways, was just as wicked as the nations that surrounded them. They were no different than the rest of the world. Even at the closing of the Old Testament, they were still marrying unbelieving pagan wives. They were still making sacrifices in the high places, worshiping false gods, metal images. They were not upright in their hearts towards God at all. But God still decided to use them to bring Jesus through their nation and to reveal him to the world. And so he's saying, hey, why don't you really take a realistic viewpoint of our history? We really aren't that great. And even though you think, hey, you know, if they're circumcised and they start following the law, then their hearts will be changed. Your hearts weren't changed when you did it. Why do you think it'll work if you imply that on the Gentiles? So the sect of the Pharisees who believed were making a critical mistake. They were looking at Israel's history under the law with the eyes of nostalgia, not the truth. 
If they would have carefully and truthfully considered Israel's failure under the law, they would not have been so quick to put the Gentiles under the law also. Actually, if you read the book of Galatians, Paul writes later, he says, okay, that's fine. If you want to trust in your own works, if you want to trust in your own righteousness, your own obedience of the the law that God gave us, okay, so you're going to be circumcised, but you also need to follow all the other ritualistic laws. Because that's what Jesus did. He fulfilled it completely. You don't have options. You can't say, I trust Jesus and my works. You have to trust one or the other. So if you say you trust Jesus, it's finished, it's done. If you say you trust in some sort of work of righteousness or not working on the Sabbath or going to church only on a certain day, none of those, you have to do it all completely. That's what Jesus did. And what's funny is, Jesus had to deal with the same teaching in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, he was very stark. He was very gruff with those that were kind of proclaiming their own righteousness. And he actually said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot be saved. He told them that. And which was interesting to them because they were like, nobody's holier than those guys. I mean, they're in the temple all the time. They're praying all the time. They're fasting two times a week. If they can't be saved, who can? And the Lord was trying to point out that they're not really that righteous. They're outwardly righteous. They're doing all the right stuff, but their heart's not right. He says there in Matthew chapter 20, yeah, Matthew chapter 23, he says, whatever they tell you to do, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. In other words, What they're teaching is good, but they're not even doing it themselves. He says, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move move them with one of their fingers. All their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. That was just something they did. If somebody had wide borders on their garments, people considered them to be holy because of some, you know, Random scripture in the Old Testament, they took to the nth degree. They're trying to show everybody how great they were. They loved the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi, in other words, teacher. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. That's interesting to me because there are certain Christians that call their leaders father. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, that is the Messiah. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. In other words, you say you're one thing and you're not, you're another. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men... For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, you're making requirements that are not godly requirements. They're things you've made up. You're not going to heaven, and you're proclaiming that you are, and then you're teaching those that are believing to turn away from the faith. So beware. What is it that you trust in apart from Jesus? Is it going to church? Is it reading your Bible so many times a week? What is it? But to the others that are trusting Jesus, are you departing from that? Are you really trusting Him, or are you only giving Him lip service? The whole point is, is that we're not supposed to just be baptized or just do certain things. We're supposed to trust the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. What do your life look like? Does it come out of a right heart? Are you trying to do good but failing? God's okay with that. He just wants your heart to be right. He wants it to be fully His. The outward actions will come later as a part of you being sanctified, set apart for Him. So, after this, excuse me, I'm going to wrap it up after they had become... Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent, 
They listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, this is the leader of Jerusalem church, he answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, in other words, Peter, has declared how God at the first, he has visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets, they also agree, just as it is written. And he quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Amos. It says, after this, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. In other words, he's going to build up his kingdom so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. In other words, Gentiles can be saved and they don't have to follow the rituals. Verse 18 says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. He's aware. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. You guys are making more rules, but these people are turning to God. Stop discouraging them. Why are they doing this? Why are they limiting God's love to these people he's trying to reach out to? That's what legalism does. It puts a burden on people and it starts to limit things that God hasn't limit, limited. <coughs> he says, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them and they're going to write a letter to them and then he gives them a few guidelines. These are not things that save you. These are guidelines. He says these things and these are kind of some things we might not quite understand, but he says that we write to them to abstain from these things. Abstain from things polluted by idols. In other words, don't, don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Don't, uh, don't be worshiping idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. This is any sort of sexual contact out of marriage. Abstain from things strangled and from blood. And these are all things that if you love the Lord, you're going to want to do these things. It's not stuff that, it's nothing new. These have been rules that God's had set forth for generations. Now, the thing about, there's one interesting in there, abstain from things strangled from blood. The nation of Israel, they were not supposed to eat animals with the blood still in it because the blood is what gives life. And so if you strangle an animal rather than shooting it, well, of course, they wouldn't be shooting it unless it was a bow and arrow. Or instead of like, you know, with a chicken, we, you know, kind of lob its head off, you know, the blood would be drained out naturally. But when you strangle an animal, what happens is it stays in there. So he's basically saying, don't eat animals with the blood still in it. And this wasn't something that saved them. It was just like, you're going to stumble your Jewish brothers and sisters that are believing in Christ. So it was more along the lines of, you know, making a concession, not using your freedom to stumble somebody but using your freedom to maybe bless somebody that that might stumble them. Does that make sense? Not taking your freedom and using it as a license to cause someone else to be stumbled by your own salvation. So anyway, to abstain from things strangled that are still having the blood in the meat. And he says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, there are many Jews among you who are now faithful Christians. Let's not stumble them. Let's live in unity and uh, let's not do things that might cause them to sin. So then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. In other words, we're going to send you back with this message but we're going to also send two other men and we're going to send you with a letter. So this isn't just your word, but it'll also be what we've written down and these two men will confirm it. Testimony of two witnesses. You know, because one person can lie about it, but if you got other people, either they're lying or they agree, they're sent with the authority of the church from Jerusalem to confirm what they've decided. They wrote this letter by them. And it says there, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, they would put who wrote the letter, and then it says, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. And it says, greeting, since we have heard that some 
who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised to keep and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. In other words, we agree with them. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. In other words, they didn't just discuss it, but they prayed about it. The Lord gave them a word of knowledge, confirmed what they had said, and he gives them these commands. He says that you abstain from things offered to idols, that you abstain from blood, because the pagans would actually drink blood as part of pagan worship, that you abstain from things strangled, from sexual immorality. This was a biggie for them because there were many times that uh, sexual intercourse was happening as a part of worship to these pagan gods. He says, we're set apart, we're God's people. Marriage is supposed to be a picture. If you call yourself a Christian, your marriage is to be a picture of God's love for the church. So there needs to be purity there so it doesn't muddle the message. That's what God made it for. And he says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. It's very short to the point. He doesn't candy coat it. And then verse 30, we'll just read through these last verses and we'll close. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. That was their home church. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. This is the group that sent them. Find out what we should be doing. We need to test these things these Judaizers are teaching us because we want to know what the truth is. There can only be one truth. What are we supposed to do? And when they had read the letter, they rejoiced over its encouragement. They weren't bummed out by the things that they brought back. They were encouraged. And Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, while they were in Antioch, they exhorted and they strengthened the brethren with many words. In other words, they used their gift of teaching, taking what God had shown them and teaching it to the church. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. In other words, they wanted the apostles there in Jerusalem to know, we've received your message, we've been blessed by it, and we want you to know we're going to continue in this word. We believe the same things you do. There was unity. Verse 34, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. In other words, he stayed there with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So for a time, they're going to remain there in this town by the name of Antioch. And they're going to teach the word of God to the brethren so that when they are called to depart again, and they will be, that the people will be able to continue the church it won't it's not dependent upon them being there the growth of the church um, god's using them to strengthen them and train them to lead the church themselves so more than anything what i want you to take from today number one god's not interested in outward acts of obedience that come from the wrong motives number two god wants your heart to be set apart for him no matter what it looks like on the outside he wants our heart first and foremost to be sensitive to his word, and to be willing to be obedient. Our obedience proves that inwardly we are saved. If some of the things that I read today are convicting to you, and maybe you're not at the spot where you need to be, don't be condemned and pushed away from the Lord. Be pulled closer to him. Be sensitive to what he's trying to do. I love, I absolutely love what Ezekiel chapter 33 says. It says that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked, and we all started that way. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ezekiel 33 says, but that the wicked would turn from their wickedness and live. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It wasn't to condemn the world. It was to show them, if you really love me, if you really think you love me, you can't keep my commandments. Maybe you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. His commandments are not meant to be a burden. They're meant to keep us from things that will harm us. And God loves us enough to tell us the things that will harm us. He loved those Judaizers and those legalistic people enough 
to tell them, hey, you think that you're saved, but you're not. You think you're trusting in Jesus, but you're trusting in something that can't save. Now, we don't struggle with circumcision, right? We don't go, hey, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. But there are those that say, you haven't been baptized? You can't be saved. But what would they say to the man on the cross, the thief, that said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom? They wouldn't be able to say anything because Jesus, what he said is today, today you'll be in paradise with me. Jesus wasn't going somewhere that we don't want to go. He was going to the right hand of the Father, ultimately. And so let me ask you, what are you trusting in that can't save you? Is it an outward act of obedience? Is it your own self-righteousness? Are you measuring your good to your bad? And if you say you believe in Jesus, how does your life look now? Consider that. It, it, it means eternity. I, I came to that own crux to my own road one, eight years ago now. And I was living on my own works. I was banking on the fact that I'd been baptized years before, but my life hadn't changed. The Lord was asking those Judaizers through the apostles, hey, your life hasn't changed. Maybe you're not trusting in the right thing. But also notice how they dealt with when they had questions about the faith. They didn't just throw their hands up and go, well, I don't know, whatever. What they did was they sought counsel. Even the apostles, the great apostle Paul goes, I don't know, let's go check this out with the other elders. Let's pray about this thing. Let's consult the word of God and see what it has to say. Do we have to be circumcised? And when they found out they didn't have to be, they went back and go, you guys are bogus. We don't have to be circumcised. Jesus alone can save us. He's worthwhile, he's worthy, He's paid it all for our sin and, and we can be saved by His grace alone through faith alone. It's not of works lest one of us would start to brag about it. So, as we consider those things, let's pray. Father, I want to thank You personally for my own salvation. Lord, I thank You that it's not something I can earn. I know that sometimes I feel like I'm really jacking things up and missing the mark and most of the time I am and at that point, you don't condemn me. You say, just ask for forgiveness. I'm ready to forgive you and to change you and give you the power to be obedient. Father, thank you that you don't leave us as orphans, but you minister into our lives and you call us to a better thing. You set us apart. You call us out of the darkness and into the light. And Lord, when we're honest with you, it really frees us from the guilt. And so Lord, if there's anyone here today that's bound up by guilt or feeling like they're not good enough to be saved, Lord. Save them. Show them that they can't be good enough. None of us can. But that your Son fulfilled all of it for us. Father, thank you so much for being willing to save us, though we don't deserve it. Thank you for these testimonies of how even in the early church there was questions about who can be saved and what it takes to get there. And I thank you that at the end of their discussions and their disputes and their arguments that they were still able to at that point see that you're enough, that you're more than enough. Father, help us to remember that in our daily lives. May our lives proclaim that truth, that you're enough. And may they at the same time become more and more obedient to you as we rest in your salvation. Lord, change us from glory to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.